Okay, hopefully my who's gonna do who's gonna be Mike you're gonna be Mike guy? Okay, great. I'm gonna pick up actually from last week. I got a number of questions on a statement I said last week um, that I can elaborate further. And last week I made the statement that national Israel is not the church or America, or to put it another way, America or the church is not national Israel. And we need to be careful, we need to be th thoughtful when we apply passages from the Lord to Israel to us. And I gave two examples. Um, I used the example, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. I know the plans I have for you. And so the, the question is, okay, how does that work then? What do we do with it? Do we just cut out our Old Testament then? Because, you know, or how, how do we synthesize? So let's, let's, let's turn in our Bibles to Second Chronicles 6. I'll work through a case. And while you turn to Second Chronicles 6, let me give you some overarching framework. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the entire Bible is for us. These things were written down for our instruction. They happened for us that we might learn from them. So in, in absolutely one sense, all of Scripture is ours. The entire Bible is a Christian book, not just the New Testament. Um, Maybe the best way I can explain what I mean is this. I think most of us understand that when God makes a promise to an individual, that doesn't necessarily directly apply to us. So when God tells Solomon, ask of me what you want and I'll give it to you, and Solomon says, I'd like wisdom, we understand God has not said, Zachary, ask of me what you want and I will, you know, like... We, we learn about God's character from this, and we learn about how he responds, and we can learn from good examples and bad examples, and we can see his unfolding plan of redemption, but you know that's not about you. I mean, although there is a danger, you read the David and Goliath story, and you plug yourself in as David. Like, you're not David. That's okay. But here, we have the dedication of the temple, and the context over this most famous passage of my people who were called by my name is so clear, I just want to read it. Solomon's got a pretty elaborate prayer. Um, so, Second Chronicles chapter 6. Then, verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had it set in the court, and he stood on it. There's actually some precedent for a speaking platform like we have. Um... Ezra had something similar in uh, Nehemiah. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled in this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for, the ser for your servant David, my father, whom you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. And what, what Solomon's doing is he's, he's aware of the covenant God made with David. Because remember, David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple. And God said, no, David, I'm going to build a house for you. Because the play on words of house as a dynasty and house as a building works in Hebrew and English equally. And yet, David, part of the house I build for you, your descendant will in fact build a house for me. And that's going to be Solomon. So Solomon knows this is all predicted. And he's wanting to not be presumptuous. He's wanting the Lord to fulfill his word. So he says, you shall not lack a man from before me to sit on the throne. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed that you have spoken to your servant David. And then he speaks about how he, in awe he is of even the prospect. But will God even dwell with man on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Yet you have, re yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer of your servant, praise before you, that your eyes may be open day and night towards this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Now that's going to set up the rest of this prayer. 
He is, to summarize, Lord, when your people pray in or towards this place, please pay particular attention. Okay? You, you with me? And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people, Israel, when um, they pray towards this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then we're going to set up a series of seven if-then clauses. And what he's going to do is go through specifics. What he's just said in broad generalities, he's going to give some specific instances. And it's going to go something like this. If your people do da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then you do da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then they pray towards this place, please forgive and deliver them. That, that's the format, okay? If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house... Then hear from heaven and act, and judge your servants for paying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people have, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave them and to their fathers. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, the people of Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon the land that you have given your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, and whatever prayer, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all the people of Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear from heaven and the dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways for you you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear and walk in the ways all the days that they live in the land that you have gave their fathers you begin to see the pattern and what's central is this house this place right we got we got two more likewise when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this house hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all of which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as do your people Israel that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name if your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them and they pray towards pray to you towards this city that you have chosen and the house that you have built for your name then hear from heaven their plea and maintain their cause if they sin against you and there is no one who does not sin and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near he's praying about the captivity that we're studying in Habakkuk Yet if they turn their hearts in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O Lord God, let your eyes be open, your ears be attentive to the prayer of this place. And now, O Lord, arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let the priests of God be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So that is Solomon's prayer. And then we have the fire coming down from heaven. And then we're going to get over to... Um, the verse that we all know. And having read Solomon's prayer, notice how the Lord's response to Solomon is in keeping with, and I think will be clear what he's saying. Okay? Um, verse 11 of chapter 7. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. The Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. Which prayer? The one we just read. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. 
When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my, what's he doing? He's reiterating some of the potential clauses Solomon already envisioned. This isn't arbitrary. He's, he's making it clear to Solomon, I heard exactly what you said. And he doesn't go through all seven of Solomon's if-then hypotheticals, but he lists a couple of them. Which is to say, yes, 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 Solomon, I'm going to do what you ask. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. That is a promise God made in response to a very specific prayer by a very specific king in a very specific nation. It is not a promise that if America or England or Canada or any country you please were to repent, this is what God would do. Maybe he would, but this is not a promise he will do that. And all too often I see people apply as if America could just repent. If America could just humble itself, then God would restore it. But it's all caught up in a number of false assumptions. When the Bible talks about my people who are called by my name, there's a particular people, and it's not the U.S. of A. It's Israel, yes. The thing about the foreigner that doesn't belong to them, and they can go and pray and expect some response from God. Yeah. So there is kind of a loophole, so to speak, for us. No, it, no it, but, but hold on, hold on. What house are we praying towards? If this, if this prayer... This specific answer involves you praying in this particular direction. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if you think, am I praying towards Israel? I mean, but that's part of the condition here. Yeah. I, w I would say with the destruction of the temple and the, and the dissolution of national Israel, this is at least put on pause or mm -hmm. this particular promise. But let me tell you what you can get from this. Okay, so I don't think we can apply this to America. No. Um, if you, if you did, if we could go to the temple as a foreigner and plead for America, then perhaps this might apply. But that's not a possibility right now, a contingent possibility. Yeah. Right. So no temple. here's what I think we can do. We get to sit on the sidelines and look at Solomon, make this prayer, and we look at God graciously saying, yes, yes, I'll do what you ask. And we are reminded of our God's character. Is God like that to us frequently? Does he frequently give us the things we have? Yes, he does. Can we do The example I would use of... God's promises to other individuals is much like I might say to my children or, or my children might say this. Imagine Sophie, my daughter, um, gets a new dress for her birthday and she falls in the mud and it gets dirty and ripped and she's crying. And I comfort her and I say, Sophie, I love you and I want to let you know I've heard your cry and tomorrow I'm going to take you and we're going to get a new dress. This Abner sitting, listening, going, yes, dad's going to get me a dress. No, I haven't made that promise to him. But my son Abner could, and I wouldn't, but my son, <laughs> my son could be reminded of, my dad loves his kids, and I, I'm reminded of how he loves me by looking at how he loves Sophie. Now, that particular promise I'm making to Sophie is not his, but can he be greatly encouraged? Can he learn of my relationship with Sophie, and can he be reminded of my, hopefully, my kind, loving heart? Yeah, absolutely can. And I'd say that's Anytime we're dealing with God making promises to Abraham, you're not Abraham. I'm not Abraham. Now, we receive the benefits of those Abrahamic promises, but as we're reading through Genesis, we're sitting in the bleachers watching the action play out. And we're, oh, wow, I God is gracious. God is kind. Yeah, well, that was stupid of Abraham to do that. And we, we can learn from all of that without having to make it about ourselves. So does that, that's, that would be my analogy of how to deal with these passages. And so, yeah, there's, there's absolute use practical application for us um my, my objection to the people that i just will seek frequently see just verse 14 applied and the clear implication is if america could just humble itself and repent then god would make america great again um i don't know and again like i said last week we don't know what god's doing for all we know god has raised us up and blessed us because he, he wants us to be babylon to some other nations israel no, we don't know. I mean, one of the things I want to highlight, turn to Ezekiel 29. So that's, that's the end of my first point about how do we deal with like pastors to Israel and stuff. So you just got to think through on what basis can I apply this? And you just got to think through it. So 
Isla asked me, can I still have, I know the plans that have you. Sure, you can have it up on your wall. It's a, it's, the Bible is yours. You can write it and have it on the wall. But it's primarily, here's God comforting Israel, telling them after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And isn't it wonderful to see God's kind and compassionate heart, even in his awful discipline to his people? Isn't it good to remember God in his justice brings mercy? Absolutely. But it's, it's like one degree of separation out. It's like one Kevin Bacon out, you know, that, that we're taking this. Um, so, okay. So is, yeah. Yeah, no, no, go, yeah, go. Oh, microphone, microphone. Okay. When she made, I don't even think it's on. It is. Okay. It is. There's okay. no amplification. It's just for the recording. Okay. Um, when it says, if my people who are called by my name. Now, I know he's talking about Israel, but doesn't that apply to us? We're his. We, we are his. But then the next question is, what land do we have? Okay. There's, there's, see, that, that's what I'm saying. This is specific. This particular people of God had a particular piece of land that was theirs, that God made particular promises about. And we will inherit the earth, right? But there is no land promises. So like the, the land promises are even tied into the Ten Commandments. So whereas Paul quotes the Fifth Commandment, children obey your parents in the Lord that this is right, that it may go well that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God has given to your fathers, Paul leaves that, if, if my children are obedient to their parents, can they expect to inherit a plot of land? Not in this lifetime, they can't. There's no promise that they will. Mm -hmm. the, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the kingdom, sure. But, but Israel, in their lifetime, if they were faithful, ought to expect economic prosperity, military safety, geopolitical honor and respect. There, there are aspects of the Mosaic Covenant that, that were particular to Israel is a geopolitical entity, and the church is a non-geopolitical entity. What is the capital of the church? What building do we go to? We're, we're, we, we have, we're transnational. We're a transnational, non-geopolitical entity, the church, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so we don't have a border. We don't have a country that hosts us. We're in all countries, hopefully. We're, that's the purpose of missions. And so we, we don't have that relationship that Israel had to land. So that would be the part where certainly, do we see God's character that when his people who are called by his name, and I can buy the church, where's people called by his name? Sure we are. Mm -hmm. When they humble themselves, when they repent, we know from Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O Lord, you will not despise. When God's people humble themselves and call on him, will he relent and be gracious to them? Of course he will. Amen. Hallelujah. Does this remind us that that is true? Absolutely. But this is a very particular response to a very particular prayer. And only by reading part of it and leaving other parts out can we wedge it into making it be to us. When in its context, it's about a building and a land and a people. And, and we can't fit into that. So they, they leave the other. You have to sort of cut and trim this. If you couldn't, if you quoted all of verse 12 through verse 16, it would be so clear America doesn't fit in that it would be obvious. But, but if you just quote 14, then you can sort of imply this is the case. Um, so ab absolutely, where is people called by his name? And God always is gracious and forgives and restores his people when they humble themselves and call it. Absolutely. This is a particular example of that. Absolutely. Amen. That, you get what I'm saying? But in its context, you'd have to twist this passage when it's saying to rip it out of the verses before and after it. And in the verses before and after it, it's a very particular response to a very particular place by a very particular person in a very particular land about a very particular building. And none of those particulars do we share. That's all. Um, we good? Oh, Trinity's got a microphone. Yes, Mrs. Morse. Okay, I want to chat about your favorite verse. <laughs> What's that? Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's go there. Can we can we can we go look at it first? Yeah. Everyone, turn to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven while we chat about my favorite verse. No, you you can start, you can talk. What okay. Do you want, what do you, okay. Cool. And your what? And your cup. I'm confused. Sorry. Okay, twenty nine eleven is that it? Yes, for okay. I know the plans I yes, have. Yes, there you. it is. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yep. So, I understand that you believe that this verse 
only has to do with the people of Israel in this specific situation and context? I wouldn't say only. I, okay. I would think of like a bullseye with concentric circles. Okay. I would say this. Okay. Can, can we just read it? Can I? Yeah. Yep. Let me, let me, give me, hold the mic. Give me one minute to tell you what I'm saying and then, then push back, respond, disagree, whatever. It's cool. 29, starting in verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are accomplished for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me when you, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So in its context, the plans is a particular plan. He's not simply saying, I've in general got these great plans. The, the great plans are, there's going to come a day where you're going to humble yourself, you're going to call on me, and I'm going to bring you back to this land, Israel. There's, there's the land I promised Abraham. There's going to be a day when I do that. And we know it's going to be 70 years from the, from the captivity. So I would say that is a very particular promise to Israel. There's no promise that if we... In, the 70 years gives it away. Has God promised to do something gracious to me in 70 years? No. I mean, other than he's being gracious every second of every day. I have no 70-year promise. That's particular to here. The heart of God in being gracious and compassionate to his people, that's timeless. And is he, does he have that heart towards me? Yes, he does. Might God instead make me endure some discipline for five years instead of 70? He might, right? I mean, so the... What we've got to distinguish is the particular promise is about a very particular thing. This isn't a general, the Lord is gracious. Like there are general statements about God. He is gracious and kind, slow to end or abounding in steadfast love. That's just always true everywhere all the time. 70 years regathering, there are particular elements that he's not promising to regather me in 70. That, that would be the, so now push back, but that's what I'd say. So it's not only to them, it's first to them and then it's, for us to learn from and to be encouraged by, but certain elements of this are not for me. I, I, I shouldn't be setting my calendar for 70 years or anything like that. Go. Okay. So I don't think I'm pushing back. Cool. I'm not sure. Okay. Let's, um, let's find out. So like the, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, their plans for good. Mm -hmm. That to me seems to be general, not because that verse was general, but because like Romans 8.28. Um, yeah. God like, causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Yes. Them. And then in Proverbs, it says that like the, um, a man may plan in his mind, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so kind of like God does get the final say in the plans of yeah. our life. And because God's not evil, they're good. But that's yeah. because God is good, not necessarily what we yeah. want as good. I think in the, I think in the context... The contrast, because the Hebrew ra'ah can mean moral evil, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it can mean calamity, disaster. If the contrast with, if the, contra, if the contrast is return from Babylon, then I would think the, the calamity, disaster is more that idea. I'm sending you to Babylon. Implication, that is calamitous. That is awful. But I know my long-term plans to you are not calamitous. They are to restore. Um, so certainly... At a macro level, everything in my life works together for my good. But it doesn't mean Christians don't have disastrous seasons. Um, a, a dear friend of mine in one year's time has lost both his parents to COVID. He's dealing with long COVID. And he's just had like, wham, wham. I would say it's been a calamitous, disastrous in some respects year. Um, so... In the context, it's the Lord telling people we're going to go through some heavy, heavy, hard disciplines, the valley of the shadow of death. My long-term plans for you are not that. Whereas for me, it might be that, I don't know, but this afternoon, I, I don't say this flippantly. Th th there is no promise of God that prohibits my wife from crashing with my children in my car on the way home from church. And that would be calamitous, you know. And there's no promise of God guaranteeing that won't happen to me ultimately would that be for my good yes um it would would it unman me and undo me I, I think it would um i would view it as calamity and disaster so yes god's plans at a macro level are always good at a more 
close-up view, he's got seasons of valleys of shadows of death, and he's got mountaintop experiences, and he's telling this particular people, you're going to go through a dark, hard place, but I know the plans they have for you, and it's gonna, I'm going to bring you back, and it's going to be good again. That... So you're just not for people using this verse to be like, oh, if I'm a Christian, life is going to be all perfect and sunshines and rainbows. What, what I call the prosperity gospel Cap. light. The, the prosperity gospel says you can be a millionaire and have a jet. And I don't think our community of faith, I don't think our people are in danger of buying into that. But I think what you can buy into is if you're good and you're faithful, then you won't get the cancer. And you won't, your children all be believers. You won't lose your house or your job. You won't have the, the, the miscarriage. You won't have whatever, whatever the thing is. And because God has good plans for me, you know. And yes, but those things can happen, you know. And, and so that, that's, yes. So the heart of God revealed by this particular promise is to us. Absolutely. What we learn about the character of God in that passage is to us. You want to put that verse up on your wall that's his heart to, to us. But the particular application of that heart of 70 years and then there was going to be a time of, of encouragement and strengthening, and that may or may not be. God may have a hard season in front of you for a long time. My friends has carried on now for nearly a year, um, and who, who knows when it will let up. I, I can't make any promises. I, I know God's good through it. I know he's going to be faithful through it, but... This might just be the beginning, or it might be the end. I don't, I don't know. But that's... Okay, Don in the back wants to say something like um, that. Sometimes I think we confuse good with pleasant. God, God is God, so he gets to define the terms. Uh, we think, again, anything good is always going to be pleasant. Anything that's pleasant is good. That's not reality. That's not... Right. Well, and in verse 11, at least the ESV doesn't translate it as good. It, the ESV puts welfare and then footnote peace. So it's, it's ra'ah, which I think in contrast with welfare, peace, means something like turmoil, calamity, strife, versus a, a, a season of peace or well-being. Mm -hmm. And, oh, good grief. God works all things together for your good, but not necessarily all good for your temporal well-being. Just read church history. Just read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You know, um, that's not the case. Um, so, yes. So it's, it's, the biggest thing I can encourage you is when you read any passage, ask, on what basis, this is for me, know that. On what basis is this for me? So Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy to come visit him and bring some manuscripts. And I think most of us are, are adept enough to realize you don't need to go get some manuscripts and figure out where Paul's at. That, no, no, it's a stupid example, right? But... No, but it's a particular instruction to a particular person, and I'm not Timothy. Okay, great. Do that with everything and just ask. And some it's really obvious. And some you just got to work your way and think through, okay, well, this is what the Lord said to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul, Paul, why are you, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? What, what, why, why has God told me he did that? What is, what is in me, what is in this for me? It's kind of what I was thinking about this morning with Habakkuk. So, this is a particular judgment for particular people because of promises made in Deuteronomy. There are no correlent promises, corollary promises for us. Could God judge America? He certainly could. Could he not? He certainly could. He hasn't made any covenant promises of how he'll deal with our country. He will do what is right. Um, so why then? What are we to learn from watching this unfold and happen? And that's what I was trying to say. I think what we learn is that it is good and right for us to be grieved by evil around us. I think we learn that God anticipates the challenge of faith of his children with he, him seeming to not answer our prayer and him seeming not to care, and that God's answer insists he does care, he does see, but you need to be ready because what he's going to do may not be what you were hoping he'd do. I, I think we learn all that through his dealings with Habakkuk and with Israel. That, that would be my application. Go, go to Ezekiel 29. Um, God is not capricious or arbitrary, but good grief, the, the factors and the reasons why he's doing things are above and beyond me. I mean, just imagine you're Babylon and you, and you, you beat Assyria and then you defeat um, um, Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish 
and you ask yourself, imagine like, why, why has the why has the God, the Lord God, allowed this to happen? Well, we know Nebuchadnezzar because I'm so powerful. What if the answer? He's all, you only beat Pharaoh Necho because he wants you to also beat this other small Semite people over in Jerusalem, huh? Yeah, you're just a big stick. He's raising up. No, and how long does Babylon last in the sun? It's Nebuchadnezzar, and then. Um, uh, then uh, Balthasar is called his son, but son can be descendant. And so extra biblically, we think he's his grandson. Three generations. And then the, then the, uh, then what's his name? Cyrus shows up and uh, takes him over. So if, for all of like their, his ancient lineage, they were only a big global power for like three kings. About as long as Israel was a unified kingdom. So, okay. So Ezekiel 29. This one's amazing. So Nebuchadnezzar, after he defeats, um, after he first defeats Nineveh, and then he goes and he takes uh, Jerusalem, and then he is going to be one of the many people to try to take Tyre and Sidon. Do you know what Tyre and Sidon are? They're twin cities. One's a mainland port, and the other is the island, and it's a walled fortress. And Nebuchadnezzar failed to take them. All sorts of people failed to take them. Read this. This is amazing. So, okay. Um, so Ezekiel, I'm in 39. Hold on, let me get to 29. Ezekiel 29. Um, what's the reference in my notes? I just want to make sure. Verse 17. Verse 17. There you go. In the 27th year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald. Every shoulder was rubbed bare. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor which he performed against her. Historically, we learn, it was a 13-year siege. And the people on the island, he only ever took the, the, the mainland port. But of course, the people on the mainland port were just getting boats and go out to the island of Tyre. So he could take possession of Sidon. Do you know who eventually takes Tyre and Sidon? Alexander. Alexander, yeah. Alexander the Great. And he does it by making a land bridge. He... It's an Iron Maiden song. He, he uh, I just can't get Bruce Dickinson's voice out of my head. He's just, ah, sorry. Okay, that's more than you need to know. Um, and he ta- makes a land, he just scrapes tire into the ocean and builds a land bridge out to, and he eventually takes it. But Nebuchadnezzar spent 13 years. Okay, so the Lord has this to say. So his army is worn out. Their, their, their heads become bald, either because the sun's beating on it or because they've grown old and they've balded. Their shoulders, the whole, it's a picture of tiredness and spent energy. Poor Nebuchadnezzar didn't get anything out of it. Therefore, verse 19, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be wages for his army. I've given him the land of Egypt as payment for which he labored because he worked for me. Declare, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. So you're in Egypt, and Nebuchadnezzar is sieging Tyre and Sidon for 13 years. And then they move on, they come down, and they gobble up Egypt and its fortune. So they beat Pharaoh Necho back. The text of uh, 2 Kings 24 says, so he didn't go out again. They retreat, but they're not a defeated nation. They're just kind of hobbled. They're no longer on the world stage. The stage is clear for Nebuchadnezzar to go in, around the Middle East. Now they're actually going to go down and, and, and despoil Egypt. You're an Egyptian. You're wondering, why, why, why did the Lord do this? Oh, because Nebuchadnezzar needed some reward for his work at Tyre and Sidon. I mean, who would have guessed that? And, and I'm not trying to make it sound arbitrary. My, my point is simply to say God's dealing with nations is above my pay grade. And unless he's telling me why he's doing what he's doing, unless he's revealing his purposes, I would really not deign to speculate. Um, what he is doing and why he is doing it. I'll give you another example. God delays the judgment on the southern tribes. Do you know why? Because Hezekiah asks him to. Hezekiah is told about the judgment to come, and Hezekiah says, Can it delay? And the Lord says, Okay, it'll be delayed till after your time. And Hezekiah's like, Good, I won't have to be alive to see it. So that gets delayed. Why, why did Israel, why did Jacob and his sons need to go down to Egypt? Why couldn't they just go directly and inherit the land God gave to them? Why, why not just. God tells us why. Why not? Because the sin of the Ammonites is not yet complete. They're not as bad as they're going to get. And I want to let that fruit ripen on the vines. You can go in and squash it. Again, not things I'd expect. Now, it's not arbitrary. It's not capricious. 
but it is above my pay grade and it's above my ability to speculate. And so as we see God's dealings with nations, I think we're supposed to get the put your hand over your mouth. He's God. Go back, go back to Habakkuk 3. I'll just, I'll just get there and then I'll open up to general questions. I just want to make these two points. Um, I had the, the Ezekiel reference and I didn't know I didn't have time. Um, but uh, Habakkuk 3. I want to read all the three. Because what Habakkuk is ultimately going to be comforted in is that ultimately we're going to learn next time we're in Habakkuk. Probably not next week because it's Mother's Day and I got potentially some other plans of what we're going to be doing. But um, when we get back to Habakkuk next, it'll be Habakkuk learning that God will turn around and judge Babylon. The ones who are his instruments of judgment will themselves be judged. And so he, he verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, have mercy. God came to Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His likeness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. Plague followed his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations and the eternal, and what he's picturing is the majesty and the great. He's what has he learned? God is way bigger, greater, more awesome, and powerful than I ever imagined. That was the conclusion Habakkuk is now describing poetically, is an all-consuming, big God. I saw the tents of Kushan and the affliction, the mountains, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Um, let me jump down to. Um, where is it? Hold on. Um, yeah, sorry. Verse, verse 17 and 18 and 19. And what he's decided is God's awesome. He's so mighty and powerful and terrible that he, he knows what he's doing. He's confident God knows what he's doing and it's majestic and it's mighty. And I don't fully get it. I get that you will come and discipline those, right? So I will wait quietly, verse 16, for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I get that much. You're going to, I'll wait. I mean, it's hard. Habakkuk, you're going to live through an exile. 70 years. It's going to be hard. It'll be really difficult. And I can wait. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and the fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. Which is to say, he makes me stable. I think at the beginning of this book, he was less stable. He felt shaky. And here, he's, I wouldn't say he fully understands everything. He, he gets the big picture. God is God, and he, he knows what he's doing. Um, and he's good, and I can trust him. And that's the synthesis of whatever's going on in the world. So if you want to look at like what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, I have no idea. Could it be the fulfillment of things? It could be, I guess. I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know. I get, I get really, really um, heebie-jeebies when I see people, um, especially like big people with ministries, trying to interpret what's going on. Because we sh One last place. Go to Philemon. Um, I think I've pointed this out before, but Philemon gives us both warrant and caution about trying to read the book of history and understand what God's doing um, in history. It's right before Hebrews. If, you got, if you're looking for Philemon. Um, verse 15. There's only one chapter, so verse 15. I think I've pointed this out before, but I'll point it out again. Um, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. So what Paul is doing is he's speculating about why things turned out the way they did. Why did Philemon, um, why did Onesimus run away from Philemon only to encounter Paul and be converted? Paul says, well, perhaps it was so that he'd leave you it's an unbeliever, but come back to as a brother. So on the one hand, is loosely held guessing at what God might be doing okay? Apparently it's okay. Paul 
gives us a pattern. I wonder what's going on. So if you want to look at the world in Ukraine, you want to look at what's going on in the places and say, could this be what's being spoken of? That's cool. Now the, the guard is, if a spirit write, if a scripture writing apostle won't say more than perhaps, could Jerry Falwell please say less than perhaps? Or Hoagie or whatever. You know, these guys who are like, I can, the people who know, can read what's going on. If they could just buckle it back, you know, just downshift a little bit. If Paul, who's been caught up to the third heavens, who's writing most of the books in the New Testament, if he won't do more than say perhaps, then perhaps we ought to follow suit, right? I mean, so we have in one and the same verse, is it wrong? To, I wonder if this is why this is working out this way. No, that's okay. That's cool. Paul does it. He models it for us. But he also models restraint in it, which is, please don't tell me you know what's going on. Perhaps this is what's going on. Perhaps this is what the Lord's doing. It looks like perhaps God is doing this. Because it's clear from when God reveals what he's doing, frequently it's surprising. It's, it's not what we'd expect. It's not what we would have even necessarily wanted. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, right? Um, and it's good, and you can trust him. But, it, but anyway, that's all the stuff I want to cover. We have about 10 or 15 minutes. I can now open up to any broader questions. Those are the two big things I wanted to get out. Um, it's like sermon part 2.0. Uh, so, Wanda. I'm almost afraid to ask this question because you might take my stability in it away. But, you know, you, you grow up hearing, okay, like when I was teaching, you pray for patience, watch out, going to get really bad. So, you know, when you're praying for your children and stuff, you're asking, hey, God, work in their life. And you're aware it might be through bad. Yeah. But to pacify myself, the verse where if you ask for bread, will he give you a stone? I kind of cling to that. You're yes. not going to take that away, are you? No, no, no. But notice, <laughs> but notice what, no, no, no. This, no that's, that's, I think that's crucial. Jesus does not say ask for bread, you get bread. Jesus simply says you don't get stones. Mm -hmm. So I think the challenge for us is I ask for bread, this thing seems to have a stone-like consistency, stone-like weight. Are you criticizing cooking? <laughs> we all remember the Rambo chili, don't we? Um, and and uh, faith takes a bite even though you think you might break your teeth. I, I think that's the challenge. Jesus does not say, yes, for a fish, you get a fish. Yes, for bread, you get bread. He just promises you. It's sort of like what I was saying. Whatever God is doing, Habakkuk 1 makes it clear. It's not that he doesn't care, and it's not that he's not acting. In the same way, whatever you're asking for, he's not just being capricious and being a sadist. And here, why don't you just take that, right? He's not doing that. Jesus doesn't say, ask for bread, get bread. He just promises, ask for bread, you don't get stones. Okay. Ask for fish, you don't get scorpions, mm -hmm. right? Okay. He, he makes that promise. So I hold on to that promise, but realize it's not saying more than that. I'm going to ask for something. Either God's going to give me what I asked for, or he's going to give me some other good thing. <coughs> it might be the challenge to believe the thing he gave you is good, though, right? I mean, that, it, it, it helps to see it in little pieces. It does. It helps to see how my father's ski accident leaving a quadriplegic was a clear, necessary step in him coming to faith. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, so I can look back at that and say, that was a good thing. It was an awful thing. You know what I mean? That can also say that, too. It was horrendous. And in the, in the damage and the pain and the effects in my larger family, it was, a, it was a calamitous event. It was calamity, right? And yet, looking back, I, can, I think I see what God is doing. I won't say more than Paul. I think I see what was going on. And I can, therefore, think I see even the good he was doing in and through it. Um, but it wasn't a stone. Mm -hmm. It sure looked like one at the time. You know what I mean? Like it, and I think the faith is, you no, know, Jesus said, whatever it is I get, it won't be stones. It won't be scorpions. My father's not sadistic. He's not, he's not capricious. He's not, he's not, he doesn't enjoy hurting. Um, yeah, does that? Thank you. All right. Okay, 10 minutes. Anything else? Anything else? Zach.
it's not a super exciting, insightful question, but um, let me get back to Habakkuk, yeah. like the very first verse. So I know that wasn't technically covered today, but... Um, Um, oh, Lord, oh, sorry. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. I just thought that was kind of interesting how it says he saw something, but as far as I can tell, it's all just like verbal discourse. Yeah. So do we get any indication that God actually showed him visually anything, or is that just kind of like language that, like basically like what popped into my mind first of all, and I didn't actually go to Zechariah, but I was thinking how Zechariah had visions in that um yeah. is that at all similar no there's not? no indication that any visual component accompany this so some of the commentaries i read probably the best explanation is what well, god we can even use let me show you something even to describe it's the it's it's noting the revelatory character is that god is revealing some some prophecies are really like what's he talking about this one's pretty clear and plain. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. So it's not even like a mystery. Like even with Nebuchadnezzar, you get the statue and the feeder of bronze and clay. And the, you're like, well, who, and we were like, who are they? I think that's probably Assyria and that's probably the Greeks. Here, there's none of that. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They got fast horses. You know what I mean? They take captives. There's no like mystery about this. And I think because of the clarity of what's being said, it is probably being highlighted by shown or saw. The word oracle literally is the Hebrew burden, which is what makes it judgment. Um, it's the same word used to introduce the last two sections of Zechariah, the burden of the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning the land of Hadras and the oracle of the burden of the Lord concerning Israel at the end of, his, of Zech, Zechariah, Zechariah, yes. But it's a fair question. No, it does. The Hebrew means saw. Um, the prophet saw, and there is nothing in here to, to, and certainly that is something that can occur with prophets. So yeah, the first four chapters of, Ze of Zechariah are his four night visions, and the visions of the night I saw, and looked, and behold, an angel I saw. So the, God does work that way with some prophets and some prophecies. This, this appears to be entirely verbal, um, other than saw at the front. Very observant, Zach. Good question. Five minutes. Oh, in the back. Um, I just have a question kind of about how to talk to others, maybe necessarily, you know, not believers, but people when you're talking about um, just the wording, I guess, of God allowing hardship or God um, not necessarily saying he causes miscarriages, but I know because of sin, that is a big part of this world we live in, you know, yeah. things die, they come to an end. But how would you say that to someone in a way that is um, better than being like, well, yeah, God, God chose for your baby to die or God allowed that? Or how, how do you say that? Okay, that's a two part question. One, the person in the midst of the whirlwind, I may not say much. I don't know if in the midst of a miscarriage is a good time to have a teaching on the sovereignty of God over all things. It might just be a time to weep and keep your mouth shut. Um, so wisdom is going to be, when is it time to talk about these things? It's part of the reason I want to talk about this now. I, I think the preparation beforehand is the value. Looking at the types of things God says he can do. God, God what I would tell someone who's not in the So Liz, I don't know without specifics and particulars, what to say to someone in the middle of the whirlwind. Um, for, to somebody thinking about it less acutely, take some things we all know the Bible says and flesh them out. Unpack, imagine for a minute, the first couple hours of the flood, you know, like drone footage. As people go to higher and higher ground, and the water chases them, and then they try to find things that float. And one by one, they all drown. Trying to save their children. To save their children mothers. And it's horrific. And, and God says he did that. Un unquestionably, he did that. And he did it as a judgment on evil. Um, and, and then if our response to that is, well, that's not nice, then you got to go back and look at why he did it. Because if you feel sympathy and if you feel, if, you're, if your loyalty and your emotions go with those poor people, 
then you don't get what God said beforehand, that he saw that every thought and inclination of the heart was only evil continually. And so that's going to help. So when we wrestle with God's sovereignty over painful, difficult things, it's either because um, we've thought, think too highly of ourselves. I mean, the point here is Israel totally deserves this. It's been a long time coming. This is exactly what he said he would do in Deuteronomy. Like, God is just to bring Babylon. It's still going to be really awful. Um, and God flooded the earth, and he was just doing it really awful. Or we think of God only as doing what is nice. Sort of uh, C.S. Lewis talked about we've taken God the Father and turned him into God the Grandfather, who just hopes the kids have a nice time and here's some candy. You know, And if that's what you're wrestling with, and people who say, well, God loves me, I think God wants me to be happy, Yes and no. God wants you to be happy in him. No parent wants their child to be happy in drug addiction. Right? So you don't just want your children's happiness. You want their happiness in right objects. You, 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 there's, a, there's a joy that can come with a high. And you will risk your child's temporary unhappiness to help for their good. So, God, so I, I would say this. To those who wrestle with if God loves me why does why does he let bad things happen is does the father love the son perfectly yes did that love involve crushing the son yes okay then maybe my assumption that perfect love only wants happiness always and forever needs to be challenged and questioned maybe it's a little more complicated and a little more nuanced than just love means happy because the father loves the son and he crushed the son. And the son cries out, as you heard this morning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he does that ultimately in a larger picture so that the son can redeem and receive a gift of love from the father and of people. Right? I mean, it's, you zoom out and put it in its context and it's still love. But, yeah, love isn't as simple as I want you happy this second. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There is a greater joy for Jesus on the other side of the cross than with no cross. Um, and the father loved the son, and he wanted him to have that joy. So he endured the shame of the cross. Anyway, we are out of time. Um, wow, that was timed. Look at that. that was Johnny on the spot. Booyah. Cool. You guys have yourself a good Lord's Day, and uh, we'll see you all next week, God willing.